out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome, dear listener. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Always playing the finest in indie pop, he says, but also sometimes folk pop. This, because this week's special guest is going to be James Fernley, he of the Pogues, and also his latest musical combo that we'll be finding out more about as the show progresses. So I brought that interview, or I'll get that interview to you, probably broken up into about three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite of mine, yes. This is the Pogues, and this is Waxy's Darkest. Excited stuff, excitable stuff. There you go, that's the Pogues, and that's a track called Waxy's Dargle, taken from their 1984 album, Red Roses for Me. A nice bit of, um, I think that was Spider and the Beer Tree. We love that. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show playing the finest in indie pop and also folk. And uh, yes, this week's special guest is going to be James Fernley from the band who I spoke to a few, well, probably last week, in fact, for hours and hours. So I've got that interview, which is very exciting. But before we have any more music and quality chat, I think we should do admin because we love that. You can contact me if you want on um, Twitter, Facebook or even Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also these all these shows, which I've been doing for three years. It's been a long time. Um, you can find archived on podcast land, which is uh, either... Yeah, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. But anyway, look, before the first part of the interview, I think we'll play one more song and then quality chat. This is going to be Sit Down By The Fire.
Yep, it still sounds amazing. That's Sit Down By The Fire that was taken from the 1988 album If I Should Fall from Grace With God. A classic. I don't know why. I missed the um, the next album, didn't I? The the one that came before that, Run, Sodomy and The Lash. But um, there is... I'll probably play Sally McLean later. But anyway, look, this is David Easel. This is the C86 Show. And this week's special guest is going to be James Fernley. From the Pogues, and also he is in a super beer group, super group indeed, called the Walker Roaders, that features um, various members from Flogging Molly and also Dropkick Murphys and much, much more. So, after babbling away for about 10 minutes with James to talk about nothing, um, I got down to the important part of the interview um, and uh, predictable part where I sort of mentioned about that very interesting fact about his new musical combo. The album came out last month, August 2019, just in case you listen to this in the future. And uh, this was James's response to my um, interest and an insightful comment about uh, the band and the members that make it up. Anyway, James, take it away, please, now, before I get bored. Yeah. Um, um, well, it wasn't designed to be a supergroup. It was... Um, it it came about through actually uh, Brad Wood. I don't know if you're familiar with him as a record producer, who did um, uh, Liz Fair. I think um, most seminally, I suppose. Yes. Um, uh, exit to Guyville, um, or exit from Guyville. I can't remember what the name. Oh was. yes, I remember now. Yeah, um, and his work with Smashing Pumpkins and a bunch of other people. He used to own his own studio in Chicago called Idpool Records, which occupied a whole block somewhere in 
Chicago. Um, recorded with a ton of people. And then he upped sticks and came to California, where I met him. He was a parent at my kid's elementary school. Um, he was. A, he said he was a bit nervous about meeting one of the Pogues, uh, which I wasn't aware of at the, at the time. But we became solid friends uh, quite quickly. Um, played in a band with him and one of the kind of um, floating members of um, um, uh, the Walker Roaders, Kieran Mulroney, who's the brother of Dermot Mulroney, the actor. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work as the kind of love interest in a lot of marriage films in the 90s, I suppose, with, um, um, oh, what's her name? Oh, the, the girl who was in um, the Richard Gere film about the prostitute in Beverly Hills. Oh, Julie Roberts. Julie Roberts, yeah. Oh, Julia Roberts. Julia, um, yes. Um, and, and also with, uh, I can't remember the, the name of the actress either, but he was, uh, Dermot had quite a solid, acting career from Young Guns with River Phoenix way back in the day. And his brother, Kieran, plays fiddle with me, uh, has done for many years in the Low and Sweet Orchestra, which was the first band that I was in when I left the Pogues for the first time in um, 1993. Um, so, um, so Brad and Kieran and myself were in a band called Cranky George for a, a number of years in hobby style, I think, really, although we did make a record now that it put out in 2016. So Brad, um, to, to turn the wagons around a little bit, um, introduced me to Ted. Ted was looking for an accordion player to play with a group called Go Betty Go a number of years ago. And, uh, and Ted and myself, English expats in Los Angeles, both arriving in LA around the same time, um, uh, just hit it off and did a bit of jamming here and there, met in restaurants by chance or came around to a Christmas party or two at uh, my house. Um, and then we started writing songs together and talking about um, a project where we could put music together, which was like combining his experience with Flogging Molly and my experience with um, working with the Pogues. And then I came across Mark Oral from Dropkick Murphys at um, a gig. Funnily enough, we were talking about Stray Cats. Um, uh, Slim Jim Phantom lives in LA and he gets in touch with me every now and again to see what I'm up to. He comes out to gigs that I do. I've been to the odd gig of his. Uh, there was a Dead Man Working gig with Captain Sensible and Slim Jim Phantom. Um, oh, other names I can't remember. Guy from The Alarm. Oh, yes. He's a nice guy. I think Mike. Um, yeah. That's um, the one. So basically, just to sort of give me a little bit of a background, I mean, so mm. with LA, is it the case that if you're just there, you're going to bump into somebody on the streets that was, was once in a, a major <laughs> band and, you, and you're just going to say, do you fancy coming round? And, oh, by the way, shall we just form a band today? I mean... Oh, I just... isn't that so funny, the way that that comes across? Yes. Um, I don't... You can characterise it like that in a, in a way, but um, all right. So with the Low and Sweet Orchestra, I bumped into um, Xander Schloss, <laughs> but I'd worked with him back with Alex Cox in 1986 for that spaghetti western film that Alex did that was crap called um, 
Straight to Hell with Strummer in it and yes. Costello and all them lot. Um, and so I, I was just at a, a screening for something um, in L.A. As soon as I arrived, basically, the year that I got to L.A. to, to go and live there. Um, and he said, oh, we're putting a band together. I've got drums, bass, guitar, uh, but it sounds a bit ordinary. I know that you're, I hear that you're playing with the Mulroney brothers, cello and, and fiddle and, and accordion. Do you want to just have a go and see what happens? So so that's how that came about. Yeah, so in, there's a kind of Hollywoody thing about it, you know, at a screening, how do you fancy meeting up in this fucking garage somewhere? And um, and so that's how the Lone Sweet Orchestra yes. started. Because I kind well, of... I do it's... think... I do think there's like, a, um, oh, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I was trying to think if there's an expat thing about it, but I don't think there is, no. really. But I know that when people like Robbie Williams went out there, they started having a regular football game with mm -hmm. all these other people who from, you know, his generation, you know, Huffin, That's right. Huffin yeah. and Puffin and probably Rod Stewart was there and, you know... Um, you know, Vinnie Jones. And, and your guy out of the pistols. Yeah, Jones. Yes, yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, Steve Jones and Vinnie Jones. And, and so never, so I, I just kind of got that impression, that, you know, from that conversation that you just kind yeah. of, yeah, to go, oh dear, right, okay, we better form a band then. You know, and I suppose, yeah, well, I think it was called the Head Cats with Lemmy and the guy from the Stray Cats that you just mentioned as well. So Yeah, Slim they, Jim, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they just formed a band. So when, you know, because I kind of, I was, you know, to be honest, I was one of those people who was very obsessed mm. with music during the 80s. 80s and sort of started coming across a lot of those kind of bands where yeah. like, there was the Boot Hill Foot Tappers and then there was other yeah. bands in the area like the men they couldn't hang and then the seven mm -hmm. seven Kevins that no one's probably heard of but I just no, I don't know seven Kevins so seven. I, uh, Hackney Five O was another band which I really liked yes and then yeah. on on a sort of the first of November nineteen eighty four in fact I just mm. had a look I went to see Elvis oh, Cost wow. well I went to see Elvis Costello at the UEA and the support yeah. band was the Pogues. And I went, oh, that's an interesting band. All right, yeah. And were you in the band then? Oh shit, yeah. No, I was there from the beginning. Yeah. Right. So you were there, and that that night you were the you were the support of Elvis. And I yeah, just... no, I, I that was the last gig of the um, of, of the tour, as I recall, and and uh, and where basically Cotto Reardon and Elvis um, sort of. Well, that was the night actually that um, that caught. I'm just actually stoking a fire because it's a little bit cold where I am at the minute, um, <laughs> <laughs> and also like I'm an American and I like to light fires everywhere I go. Um, um, yeah, that was the night um, uh, that caught shaved her head into and leaving a little crown of hair at the top in order to attract Elvis's con uh, attention, which she was already attracted in any case. But I think she was. Um, I think she was desperate at that time with it being the last gig of the tour. Right. And um, um, <laughs> such a mistake. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But I so could, you were there. I was there. And there was like, with support bands, as you know, normally you only get about 10 people watching, don't you? And everyone else is at the back. But I was, I was quite close. And I was a bit amazed with seeing Spider smacking a, mm. a tray against his head. And then the drummer yeah. who was standing up. And then this kind of incredible mm. folk sound and at that time you know and folk music had slightly been there with steel ice bands say and various yeah. other peer bands who i'd grown up listening to because you know all around my hat was a big hit once wasn't it and my brother had a 
compilation yeah. of their music. So it was there, but but then suddenly folk music was like, okay, I'll I'll be in you know of that per- sort of person. I went and bought the first album and thought, oh, good for you. I, yeah. Yes, I know. I was I thought, well, this isn't going to you know they'll do one album and that'll be the end of it. Little did I know that it was going to be the beginning of a a long and interesting relationship with the Pogues. Yeah, on the way to becoming <laughs> national treasures. So um, it's true. But... So you, so when you had you been together that long when when you were doing that tour, by the way? No, yes, no. Um, two years. We started um, virtually two years, almost exactly to the month uh, before that. Was the first gig that we did was at the Pinder Wakefield, uh, another folk bastion with uh, you and McCall playing there and um, whoever else. Um, uh, that was uh, like six, fifth or sixth of October. 1982 and then we um, basically drained all of Whitbourne buildings into the pub for the um, for, for our residency there um, and got going really quite quickly from from that because it was a local phenomenon uh, and, and helped out by groups like the Bootle Foot Tappers and Hackney Five-0 and um, the men they couldn't hang um, Shillelagh Sisters, um, there's a multitude of them. It's quite a movement, sort of. Uh, yeah, I guess a movement. Yes. But I think we stuck out. I think we stuck out a bit because we didn't have beehive hairdos and dungarees or anything. Um, we just wore, you know, suits, which um, which I still do actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and also during that period, and one thing, because I've been doing this show for a while now with these, a lot of these bands from the 80s, that, that mm. very early period, one of the key things was kind of either being able to sign on for a couple of years or being on the a Job Seekers mm. Allowance or the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which gave a lot of people that chance to sort of, I don't know, indirectly get funded to be a musician for a certain period of time. And I just wondered if, you know, and also living in squats, did that, was that part of the, the kind of yeah. makeup of the Pogues as well? Yeah, absolutely. As I say, so draining Whitburn buildings into the Pindera Wakefield for our residency, um, because we had a community of, um, it wasn't squatting, it was short life housing community. Uh, what was it called? Short life housing, SCH, short life community housing was the charity that looked after um, erstwhile council buildings. The Camden Council didn't have the funding to um, maintained so they I don't know what the, the financial arrangement was but leasing them out I suppose to a charity um, so they could keep the housing stock um, full of people but you know people like me paying you know a pound a week and then four pound a week it went up to um, and so we had our we had our neighborhood that was ready to follow us wherever we went which was not very far to begin with. Yes. Um, and indeed, yeah, no, I, I um, in fact, a couple of years ago, I met with Shane's uh, DHSS um, um, uh, uh, handler, um, which is really funny. Oh, what's that? Is that you? Yes, that was me laughing. <laughs> Oh, because I didn't realize I didn't realize you could meet up with your DHSS handler. It was just a strange. No, angle. no, I um, this was this was uh, like I said a couple of years ago. There was a there's a guy called Richard Thomas who runs the Lan Weekend Festival. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's in Dylan Thomas's home. T- I think it's his hometown in Wales near Carmarthen. 
that they have uh, an arts literary music uh, weekend, I think usually in April or maybe, no, 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 June possibly. You should check it out. Yes. Um, and Richard Thomas used to live in Whitbourne Buildings and I went to go meet with him in Crouch End for a drink a couple of years ago. And the guy that he was with was Shane's uh, DHSS uh, account, you know, person. And they would design his sign-on um uh, routine, uh, knowing that he would probably fuck it up and miss his sign his sign on date, so they would just ad- adjust it so that he was able to um, get to the to the the, the DHSS in, in I think it was in Islington somewhere. I don't know why, um, so that he wouldn't miss his payments and everything. <laughs> they did their best to look after him. It was so funny to meet him. Yes. Such a nice guy. Yeah. What an amazing story. Yes. That yeah. was but but during that period, you know, apart from the the great Thatch years, we also had obviously the political sort of thing going on with the miners and all that business and Red Wedge Talk, about yeah. R- R- yeah. Red Wedge about to appear. I mean, you had that post punk period, and then you had the sort of bands like Echo and the Belly Men. Bunny men, not belly men, and um, and then you had that. In- <laughs> they're probably a bit. Yeah, they're probably put on some weight. But um, but, but then you had that indie pop. So being in that world that was more folk related with those kind of more traditional instruments, did you feel like, God, this is good, but really this is not going to go that far? Well, I've had my dad's voice in my head throughout all that time. There was um. There was a, a, um, a documentary called South of Watford that Ben Elton did. I don't know if it was on a regular basis, but he, I think it was a regular series called South of Watford. And then he um, came to interview um, various bands in that kind of eruption of, um, of, of music that came on the heels of uh, Tour IA, you know, um, Dexas Midnight Runners. Uh, with the, well, we mentioned the dungarees and the washboards and the beehive haircuts and and all that kind of stuff, and I think we were a bit sidelined by that program when Ben Elton came to interview Shane because Shane carried off that interview like nobody's business. He was totally fucking fantastic, gave Ben Elton nothing that Ben Elton wanted, but everything that Shane wanted to give him, he gave. Like he was insolent and and monosyllabic, but the attitude that came from Shane was just like second to none. It was really exciting to watch that. My dad watched that programme and he said, well, James, if you're hitching your fortunes to this guy, I would say unhitch yourself as soon as you can. (laughs) 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 And uh, and I didn't because um, I, I, I enjoyed what we were doing. I was learning something. Uh, that I hadn't known about before, which was which was serious music work in the back bedroom of this guy in Woodbourne Buildings who let us have his back bedroom. And we worked like hell to get the Pogues to sound the way that they did. It sounds like it was ramshackle and just thought of at the, at, just at the minute. But we, we worked really hard for a couple of years to try and get it to, try to figure it out. Yes. Um, um, and... Yeah, and I was going to say because because I did an interview with dear old Fast Eddie, and they spent a few years, and that was mm. going 
nowhere fast and it was like okay we'll have one more shot and then just see if this works otherwise we're just you know we're broke we're living in squats we've got no money we're just going to give it up but then it just ticked did, did you with the with the pogues did that when you were rehearsing and getting that together did you occasionally feel like god this is hard work or did that elvis costello support slot was that the kind of ticket to to something that was the leg up the, step the, on. Fir- the first leg up was um, was being signed to Stiff Records. Um, I mean, we had a manager who um, we had a manager who who was like a, I, I guess, like a, a conventional rock and roll sort of manager, not in the Don Arden type. But um, uh, thank God. I mean, it was it was difficult to work with, and 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 uh, you know we learned something about him as 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 the as the years went by. Um, but at the beginning, no, he he was he was so keen on getting us to do what we what he knew that we could do and, and what we knew that we could do. And so when we signed to Stiff, that was that was the first leg up. Um, then it was when Philip Chevron, who became our guitar player. Um, he brought Elvis to a gig that we did at the um, uh, the, the Diorama in Regent's Park. Um, and that was when he basically first set his cap at Cotto Reardon, the bass player, um, and, and set his cap at us as well. He, he really loved what we were doing. So um, um, it's just like... You know, you talk about people that you meet in LA, but I mean, Philip Chevron was was instrumental in, in in helping us out in the early days. Yes, um, um, he was he was great um, forming connections and, and stuff. Yeah, and that is going to be the first part of my interview with James Fernley, talking about those early years of the Pogues and also his latest musical combo titled The Walker Riders. Do check out the album. It will change your life. Anyway, look, let's play a track. This is going to be from the album that came after, um, yes, Red Roses for me. This is uh, taken from the album Rum Sodomy and The Lash. Then this is my favourite and that's all that matters. And this is Sally McLean. Again, the pub where I was born He played it from the night time To the pace of early morn He served the souls of psychos And the men who had the horn And they all left very happy in the morning But Jimmy didn't like his place In this world of ours Where the other man brought strongman's decks And he had too many pairs So I sad to see the grieving Of the people that I'm leaving And he took the road for God knows in the morning We walked into the station in the rain we kissed him as we put him on the train And we sang him a song The time's long gone Now we knew that we'd be seeing him again But it's sad to say I must be on my way So buy me beer and whiskey Cause I'm going far away But I'd like to think I'll be returning when I can To the greatest little boozer And to Sally McLennan The years went by and times the change I grew to be a man I learned to love the virtues of Sir Sally McLennan I took the chairs and drank the prayers and crawled back home and done I ended up a barman in the morning I prayed the pump and took the hump and wore the whiskey down I took the birds and horses to the men and drank the brown I heard the sight of Jimmy's making money far away And some people left for heaven without warning We walked him to the station in the rain We kissed him as we put him on the train And we sang them a song, a time's long 
When Jimmy came back home, he was surprised that they were gone. He asked me all the details of the train that they went on. Some people may have scared the cop, but Jimmy drank until he choked. Took the road for heaven in the morning. We walked into the station in the rain. And we kissed him as we put him on the train. And we sang him a song, a time's long gone. Though we knew that we'd be seeing him again. Sad to say, I must be on my way So buy me beer and whiskey cause I'm gone far away I'd like to think I'll be returning when I can To the great distinctive boozer and to Sally McLennan Indeed, it's excitable stuff There you go, that is Sally McLennan And uh, that was from the album Run, Rum, Sodomy and the Lash 1985. Remember it well. Great cover. Anyway, this is David Esau, The C86 Show. I won't tell you how you can contact me because that sounds a little bit desperate. But this is going to be the second part of my interview with James as we were trucking on through the years and also those golden moments. Anyway, this is, um, yes, the second part. And this is where I have started talking about those wonderful people called the gatekeepers that I like to talk about in great detail. And I wonder why I never get invited to parties Take it away. Because then, you know, because there was a few real... One, the other thing that I really noticed looking at that period, which I hadn't appreciated, was the get, kind of there were gatekeepers. There was like things like John Peel. A John Peel play, you know, especially in those early days, would often mm. really make people go to that next level, you know, a John Peel session. And then, you know, they, they, the, the, the bookings would come in for live gigs around the country, yeah. which were often quite random, but people would just get in a van and just do it, whatever. Um, and then that first album... But then there was also the music press, which, you know, at the time there was three major ones and they all sold mm-hmm. like 100,000 each. And then we also had on a Friday night the tube as well. So there was there was yeah. those kind of avenues where people could kind of find mm. a bigger audience quite quickly. And I just wondered, because you obviously did Red Roses for me, which which had mm. a few absolutely classic tracks on it, which, you know, obviously... Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, I do think, you know... Waxy's Dargaunt was is a classic, and, and the streams of whiskey, and the, you know, I mean, there was just a lot of songs that you still yeah. go back to, thinking, God, they were absolutely. It had a lot oh, of energy wow. to it, you know, and yeah. a, a lot of yeah, a lot of passion, didn't it? I mean, it was just something else. So I can remember sort of managing to track that down in a record shop, which made me feel very chuffed because at, at the at, but at the same time, you know, no one else had heard it. But then your second album, which came mm. almost the following year was the one that yeah. really did catapult you into a bigger audience, didn't it? Well, that was on account of... Um, um, on account of, of a few things. I think the album cover didn't hurt. I think the muse, the material that we, that we were doing, uh, that Shane was writing more of his own stuff for the, um, for the second one, and also the fact that it was produced by Elvis Costello uh, is, wouldn't hurt either. Yeah. Um, um, and and a great fucking title that, that Andrew Rankin, the drummer, came up with, uh, just on a, on a on a story that he was telling on the tour bus once. Um, that somebody said, "Yeah, that's the album title." Um, Rum Sodomy in the Last, which was seemed to fit in with our whole like ethos. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it? I don't know about the whole ethos. No, but, but anyway. was it quite difficult at that stage to keep the band, you know, like? sane and together because obviously with a lot of bands especially in those days and and just kind of the general 
the way people were did you know there was a lot of probably drinking and drugs and stuff I just wondered how you know and then trying to be creative mm. at the same time can be quite tricky with a you know a group of people and a female bass player yeah that's right yeah um, um I'm glad we had a female bass player it was she was great I thought her attitude was fantastic um um we had difficulties with with her but we had difficulties with Shane, we had difficulties with Spider, we had difficulties with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and, and drink gets in the way. Um, I can't say there was an awful amount of drugs going on, not really, mostly drink. Um, but as we were talking earlier on about uh, Robert Fripp, you know, being away for no longer than three weeks and he wants to send videos to his dog or something, I think he said. Uh, no, that was Neil, Neil Slofkin. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard being on the move the whole time and you meet people and then you, you, then you don't see him after that. And then you meet some new people the next night and then the whole rhythm of the thing. I remember lying on a, top of a wall once um absolutely bone tired from from doing gigs my brother thinks that i've never i've never worked a day in my life but um uh, if he occupied my skeleton at, at, at that time he would know that uh, i actually i actually did <laughs> it's 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 hard it's hard fucking work um to do you know the the rock and roll punk whatever <laughs> music folk thing Yes, it's it's really it's it's really difficult. I mean, I've had a a, a great career doing it. Um, it's been fantastic. The stuff that I've been able to be involved with, or pull off, or or or, or, or create, or abet, um, or assist with all sorts. It's, yes. Um, so when, because cause at that stage, you know, as with a lot of bands, not everyone, but quite a lot, you know, personnel's uh, kind of changed. So you lost, you know, Kat left quite soon after that, didn't she? 87, she um, she uh, um, left rehearsal and took a bass with her. And we all thought, wait a minute, she doesn't practice what she's taking a bass for. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so the next thing we knew that she joined Elvis in uh, San Francisco. I rang her up to say, you know, what are you thinking? And she just went, oh, James. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and that was, um, that was it. So um, um, we, we had a, a sort of hand-wringing session about who the, the replacement bass player was going to be. And we had a couple of suggestions. And then our sound man, Paul Scully, um, said, I don't know what you're talking about. You've got a bass player right there who was in the crew. Um, had been in our crew, well, he had been the crew right from the very start, in any case, Daryl Hunt, who did our lights, sound, he drove us everywhere. Um, and, and I don't know, we didn't think he was cool enough until Paul said, you're, you're fucking mad. Get, <laughs> get Daryl to play it. So then Daryl becomes like the coolest fucking bass player that we ever had, really. Yes. He's fantastic. And with every rock and good rock and roll story, you you know obviously Stiff Records had their zeitgeist moment and then went bust as most indie labels did. Did that yeah. was that a bit of a shock disaster for the band? No, actually, because we'd already formed our own label. Before, because um, I think Frank, the manager, could see what was happening with Stiff Records, and and uh, and then I think he arranged for us to, to get our own label that would. 
I suppose, be licensed to stiff until such point that stiff couldn't do anything. Dave Robinson came to visit with us at the rehearsal. They looked a sad sack when he did. And he basically sort of beseeched us to stay on with Stiff and, and we just knew it was over. So it came as no shock to us. And I guess Frank had been oiling the wheels with um, Warner's at the same time, uh, I suppose. We kind of went on strike with, with Stiff and recorded demos for what I guess would become um, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. We did um, recorded the Terry Woods solo album and um, did most of those songs in demo form at Abbey Road Studios, which was great because we were all being sneaky. We didn't want Stiff to know. Um, uh, but that was, a, that was a great sort of creative part of, of, um, of our career, to, to go off and do something sneaky and put an <laughs> album together and then record it properly at, um, with Steve Lillywhite at, um, at Rack yes. once um, Stiff were out of the way and we had Warners. Yes. Um, it was a bit of skullduggery, but I don't think it was all that serious. Yes, I just remember, there's that Hunter S. Thompson quote, isn't there, about rock and roll and, um, yes, you know, the seedy side of it. Because actually, because it was 88 and that was, you know, one of those kind of periods where the... Was this the mm. point where you look at the band and think this was us in our absolutely peak performance moment, you know, if I should fall from grace with God? Um, yeah, I suppose. I'm just trying to think. Um, I mean, we were really, really lucky to have um, Steve Lillywhite um, produce for us um, because he made the... He made the... He made the I don't know, he kind of made us sound all sort of grown up, but allowed us to to to, to let rip as well in the studio. And by that time, also, we had Terry Woods joined by then. Funny you should mention Steel Eye Span, because that Terry Woods was almost in that um, iteration of Steel Eye Span before... Um, uh, but he left just before All Around My Hat came out <laughs> uh, because he and his wife split off. I, I think Terry was um, a difficult person uh, back then. Um, and and, and I, I wouldn't know if he was a difficult person now. I haven't spoken to him for a bit. Um, but, he, you know, he's, he's got his, um, he's got his, uh, uh, um, his, his, his passions. Um, and I think he probably made them felt when he was in Steel Lifespan and, um, and then ended up not being in the group anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that, actually. Um, so we had, um, we had, uh, sorry, I'm just getting a block of wood from outside. <laughs> just, just feeling the chill of an autumn evening. Yes, it's the 1st of September. It is, it's yeah, the, so it is. Yeah. It is a bit weird, but, um, yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite enjoying it. Um, <laughs> And then, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so we had Philip on board by that time playing guitar, so that was different. Um, we took, because we had to take Shane off uh, playing guitar because he, he, he couldn't sing and play dependably um, at the same time. Um, and Terry bringing his sort of unique... Um, uh, 70s, I guess you'd call it 70s uh, folk style to the 
thing with a lot of power. Um, and, and, and Steve Lillywhite producing and, and, and the engineering sort of um, 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 level that, that, that we had um, just made that sort of lift the game up, I, I, I suppose. I, I don't mean to say anything bad about Elvis's pr- production, because um, I, I rather enjoyed what he did. Yes, Elvis, but, it was, but it's for, interesting for what you said, because I remember, because it was like Fast Eddie, I think it was on their third album, for some unknown mm. reason, they decided, because, you know, though they'd done Ace of Spades and Bomber and stuff, that Fast Eddie mm. would produce that third album, which was like the beginning of the end of that, you know, that three-piece, basically, because it just wasn't a good experience. Mm. And he sort of, and various other people have mentioned the importance of a really good producer and engineer. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah so, because I just wondered how that was with Elvis, because obviously he, he didn't have a career in it, unlike someone like Steve Lillywhite. And with that mm. particular album, which is in 88, you did have those two kind of quite epic songs thousands of sailing and also streets of sorrow the birmingham six so oh, the, shit, yeah those yeah. those kind of for me they were the kind of and i love i love sit down by the fire so but those first so two do I. isn't that funny <laughs> that's that's um uh, people think that's like a deep cut but i think it's one of the deep best songs on that record yes but i do yeah. think thousands of sailing and streets of sorrow birmingham six are you know they're quite epic and you do need a lot of good detail for the production on that i would imagine for the band can you remember when they came together those songs um no <laughs> no i can't um it seemed like at the time that Streets of Sorrow was sort of tagged on the front of um, Birmingham Six. I mean, they were both recorded separately. Um, or were they? No, because like uh, Terry's thing, his guitar goes jing, 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 and then it goes into Birmingham Six. So he must have done that yes. by himself as a kind of, you know, introductory sort of track. Yes. Um, I'm just trying to remember how that, how that worked out. And thousands um, and thousands of uh, uh, sailing. That's kind of nearly six minutes of. Uh, it's almost prog rock, isn't it? And that's again one of those ones that is quite. Um, yeah, it, it's quite a journey, isn't it? Lyrically and, and musically. Oh, fantastic! Fant- such a fantastic song that is, um, and one that brings tears to my eyes. When, well, whenever I played it, um, you know, especially with Philip's story and and the story of you know, of, of my friendship with him and with everybody in the, in the band. Like, I remember um, the, the, the the gig that... Well, we had to do a couple of gigs after we'd let Shane go, actually, in Japan, um, where Shane would still sing. Um, and one of these was at the uh, Yokohama um, Walmart Festival. Um and I just remember looking around at everybody thinking, oh, this is all over now. And then here comes this fucking song. And I was going to go to be going to America myself shortly. I, I handed my notice in and no, no, I hadn't. I, 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 I was already uh, by that time married to um, Danielle, my wife, um, uh, American. And so I knew that I would be on my way to America at some point. And here's Philip's song about, just about that, except I wouldn't be going on a coffin ship. I'd be going sort of like premium class on TWA or something. <laughs> rather, than, so, so that's where the that's where the the, um, the similarity uh, um, uh, disappears. <laughs>
Yes, well, quite. So then after, <laughs> because obviously that, that, you know, that, that's the, you know, huge album. And also you had the famous Christmas single, which, which I guess yeah. you just must have gone, wow, that's a bit unusual. We've done a Christmas song as well. Didn't see that when we started in 82. Um, yes. No, not at all. That's, that's so bizarre. That was a long played out story of, um, of, uh, of, you know, how do you get, you know, Christmas single and, and national treasure and, um, you know, the most beloved, um, so I'm told anyway, um, uh, Christmas, uh, yeah, all that, kudos. <laughs> it does It does keep coming back. But then, so yeah. then after that, was the band beginning, because the other band that I'm, uh, I confess I loved during that period was the Smiths, and they had those five years, you know, mm. it was like 83 to 87, roughly. And then it all just kind of went. But they, the, the members of the band did sound like they just lived it for 24-7 for five years. And then it all just went, no, we're just going to finish. And it kind of ends kind of badly. So with, did you have the same intensity when you were with the Pogues? Um, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd say so. Um, I think a lot of intensity came in Shane's luggage, in any case. Um, spiders too, I would have to say, and cots as well. And, and like everybody, I mean, when you, when you bung a load of people in a, in a, in a tour bus, um, it's a confined space, it's not, on a, not much of an escape. Um, same thing with on a stage. Hotels are a bit different because you just go to your room if you, you, know, if you don't want to stay up and, and, and drink and, and get over what you just did. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a cooped up sort of existence, so it is. Um, sometimes overly self-referential um, and... and um, in a, in a bit of a bubble, I, I suppose. Indeed, a bubble. The boy in the bubble. That was Paul Simon. Anyway, look, that is the second part of my interview with James. But I need still more quality chat to come. But I think we should play some more music, just in case you're slightly hyperventilating. And I hope you are making notes, because I will test you at the end. But this is going to be, yes, from their new album, The Walker Roaders which is a self-titled album. This is the opening track called Lord Randall's Bastard Son. Indeed. Anyway, it does sound fantastic. Hopefully they're going to have live dates very soon. Anyway, take it away. Stop it's one in three Where the wheat is growing thin 
Indeed, that is the track titled Lord Randall's Bastard Son, and that is the Walker Roaders, which is James Burnley's new combo with various other members. Anyway, this is going to be the next part of my interview where I was talking in great detail about the last Pogues album, Waiting for the Herb, I do believe. And um, I did say, and you can quote me, did you... But uh, this is why I said to James, did you feel the magic had gone when you were making that album? And this was his reply. James, was the magic gone? Yeah, I'm afraid I um, I'm afraid I did. I, I adore Jem fine, and I always have done. He's been like a best mate for a long, long, long time. Um, um, and and I, well, I adore all of them. And I, I didn't want to pinpoint, you know, Jem for any sort of, particular uh, uh, uh you know that he was responsible for the for the record i mean we're all responsible for the record but once you'd lifted a stone of shane's songwriting off then you have the creatures that were underneath it um all doing stuff i think it became fractured we you know we've got to have the girl from the wadi hammer mat you've got a drunken boat you've got pachinko you've got Everybody was writing a fucking song, and you you didn't have the 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 kind of pointy bit of the vision that Shane, despite himself, always had. Um, and I think the production was was pretty crap. I, I like uh, I forget his name now. I met him in LA a couple of years ago. Um, um, Michael Brook, right. Um, I, I liked him a, a lot, but I did not like um, the the the, um, the overall sound of the of the thing. I think it was just um, um, all right. So I had a chemistry teacher at school who demonstrated what um, liquid nitrogen would do to a lizard, and he dipped it in <laughs> liquid nitrogen or sprayed it on this lizard, and he hit it with a hammer, and then all the bits of lizard <laughs> flew off his bits of um of bits of um uh, of uh, frozen lizard and i think that's basically what um um uh waiting for herb was <laughs> yes <it's, laughs> did hell's ditch did that did that still maintain i mean because you'd been going for nearly 10 years was that still well, eight years did you still have some magic in that making of that album or was that yeah that was that was that was great i mean that was the partly to do with the location and the time of year because uh, it was a, a, a residential studio out in Wales 
um, and the Italian foot, the World Cup was on, and and the weather was fantastic, uh, and we were up to all sorts of things. Jem was going around the farmyard, hitting things and recording it. Um, Shane was in and out. He was into his Thailand love affair thing, um, and and when he showed up, it was to me anyway. It was mostly a disappointment. Um, but then he would show up and do um, a, a track that didn't show up on on um, straight on on um, um, oh shit, what's it called? Hell's Ditch. Hell's Ditch. Um, he uh, came actually out on on just look him in the eye and say, "Pulled my own." It was like a um, a box set of outtakes and whatnot. There's a song called "Pinned Down" on there, uh, and that was just insane to record. That was. Such a lot of fun. Well, no, not fun because it was a harrowing subject matter um, to do with um, um, children, institutions for, for foster children, um, um, which Shane, I think, had some experience with. Yes. Um, somehow. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so it was, it, was, it was fairly intense, so it was. And Strummer was great. As um, as a producer, you know, keeping the vibe up um, and everything. Yeah. Yes. So when so what happens in that moment where you think this is it to quote Joy Division? You know, when you walk away in silence, do you do you have a sort of a moment where you think, how am I going to do this in a way that's going to feel good for me, the band, and everyone else, or do you just slam the door? Quitting, you mean? Yes. Um, well, I don't think there's a question of slamming the door. I, I went out to breakfast with Jem Finer and, and handed my notice in six months before I left. I mean, <laughs> the kind of hubris. You'll need six months to replace me. <laughs> Which I didn't mean it to come across like that. But they waited till the last fucking minute in any case to replace me by by accident with somebody else. So I don't know why I bothered with the six month um, uh, giving notice thing. Uh, and and Daryl and Andrew were cross. Um, Jem was was stoical about it. Um, I don't really know what Spider's take on it was because he was um, in the throes of, um, of of lots of life changes for him at the time. Um, and. Um, uh, but then, uh, at the end of my stint with the Pogues, uh, at the Christmas of 1993, um, here comes Shane, come to sing a song at the last gig that I did, Strummers Out on Stage. Um, it was a fucking great night for me, that was. It was a real, really great send-off. Yes. Um, and then off I go to... Um, to you know, instead of digging praties, I'll be digging lumps of gold in um, <laughs> California. California, eh? Yes, and that must yeah. was that kind of you know. Did you ever used to bump into Lemmy? By the way, no, never did. No, no. Uh, there was a guy that um, that used to go into the Rainbow Room, who, who used to see Lemmy sort of propped up against the wall. But um, no, I never never came across him. Yeah. I did actually follow him down. Um, a corridor in um, Heathrow once, and and if there's any guy that knew how to travel on um, a, 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 you know a transatlantic flights, it was him. 
Because there he is with his fucking cowboy hat with all those fucking buckles on it and his, and his narrow ass and his tight jeans and his leather jacket. And he had uh, a plastic bag with 200 Marlborough in it and, um, and I think a Jeffrey Archer book and a bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> not, not even a tooth. So then when you, when you finish a band and you've been together like a marriage for 10 years, what does, that, mm. what does that feel like for you? You know, like you take your instrument away. Do you, I mean, is there other stuff to sort out, like the admin, the royalties, anything like that? Or do you just, just go, God, I'm not in the pose anymore and just walk around feeling a bit like either a weight has been lifted or, oh, fuck, what should I do now? Um, I never worried about the old fuck, what shall I do now, particularly. I I just, my first daughter had been born that year and I was ready to be a dad. So I went straight into um, uh, dad mode for the next, well, couple of years until the Low and Sweet Orchestra started. Um, and even then, when it came time to go out on the road, um I had to decline because then my second daughter had just been born um, and I felt like I couldn't be away. So we did recording with Lawrence Sweet Orchestra and um, and a couple of videos and gigs around Los Angeles. Uh, but I, I had to stay home when it came to actually um, getting in the back of a van and going off. Um and that that was a source of contention between myself and Zander, I think. Um, but I, I I couldn't have it go um, any other way. Um, and then once my kids were all sort of grown up and gone to college, then here comes Cranky George. Uh, well, they overlap um, a certain amount, or not? Well, it's uh, what over does overlap is is the reunion phase with the Pogues, which started out in two thousand and one. In fact, my daughter used to go on. Um, the oldest daughter used to be picked up going a carpool to to school, and, um, and one of the mums said, and what, and "Martha, what does your dad do for a living?" And she said, "He goes to Christmas every year to play the accordion." <laughs> Oh, he goes to London for Christmas, Christmas every year to play the accordion. And I don't know what image that might have conjured up in this mum's head. Um, just one like a, like a Santa Claus guy outside a department store somewhere on Oxford Street, earning money for the family yes. at Christmas. She, um, she probably looked quite sad for her daughter. He's like, oh, never mind. We all have, a, mind. We all have yeah. one of those in the family, don't we? A bit deluded. So how did the reunion feel, you know, having that space between leaving and then sort of, um, yeah, that was nearly six, seven years, wasn't it? It was actually longer than the first go-around with the Pogues. Um, the first go-around was nine years, and this lasted from... Uh, the reunion phase lasted from 2001 to 2014. So um, that was that was great. Um, it was uh, regular, mostly. Um, it earned really well. Um, the exchange rate was good for most of that time for me. Um, I got a bit pissed off with playing the same songs over and over again. But then Jem said to me, this is what we do. Just get used to it. So I did. Um and then, and then I really, really got into it. Um, I started to learn how to play the accordion without looking at my fingers, which 
put me in great stead for playing with Cranky George and then now playing with Walker Olders, where I sing and I can't, I can't, it's not physically possible to sing and look down at what you're doing with your fingers. You've just got to learn what to do. So whether I was preparing for this in some way, I don't, I don't really know. I guess I kind of sort of was. Yes. So it worked out, worked out really well. So I, I learned um, different skills while I was doing the, um, the Pogues reunion thing, um, just getting good at playing the accordion again um, and, um, and enjoying showing off an awful lot and being a sort of the stagecrafty type thing. I, I, I suppose if it is stagecraft showing off, um, maybe it is. I, 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 who knows? Yes. And then, because obviously, as, you know, as we all start to discover as you get older, you know, like one, one has one's kind of health and ailments and parents and then other friends. Mm. And so when, you know, because Philip died in, I mean, it was, was it 13 he died, 2013? Yeah, must, I think so, yeah. That must yeah. have been a horrendous shock. For Horrible. Them. Horrible. Um, I mean, we, we, we had a bit of preparation for it, but I... I we were playing, um, I forget where now, but we all had to meet in Bristol and he'd been to his, um, uh, an oncologist session um, in London and was coming out on the train. So I thought I'd go out with the um, driver to go and pick him up from the um, train station. And he'd actually, he'd actually texted us, uh, emailed us from the train on the way out to say that the prognosis wasn't good. Um, and to see him come down the ramp at... Um, at Bristol Temple Meads and uh, just to hold him in my arms for a bit because there's nothing you can fucking do. You can't say anything, oh, it's going to be all right because it's not going to be all right and he knew it. So just we had a little moment, me and Philip, and I was, I'm so glad of that, just to hold him in my arms for a bit. Um, yes. Thankful for all the stuff that we'd been through. I mean, he was a cuss and difficult to work with a lot of the time and we, me, he and I went through some difficult um, um, years um, you know, as, as far as a relationship was concerned, yeah, hard. But um, it, it, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've miss him terribly now, still. And um, and that's about it, really. Yes, because now, bizarrely, you know, I don't, I don't know if you feel it's bizarre, but you, you're now one of the kind of more elder statesmen in the world of rock and pop and folk, obviously. <laughs> you know, which, which was kind of, it was always, I mean, bizarrely, they're still going, aren't they, the Rolling Stones? But, but you know, you, you, you know, you probably think, God, we're just kids compared to them. And you think, no, two years, two years time, I'll be doing my pension. So does it feel kind of strange that you think, God, we were once these kind of kids back in the 80s, you know, claiming unemployment and playing these kind of squat parties and suddenly... I'm doing it and, and and I'm in LA hanging out with lots of cool dudes from other bands. Well, first of, first of all, I'm going to disabuse you of the idea that I'm in LA hanging out with a lot of cool dudes. Me, I've got a, I've got a nice house. I've had it for 20 odd years. Um, I, I live with my wife there um, uh, and and it's but it's just a it's just a fucking house and I have friends like everybody else has friends. I don't hang out with um, cool dudes particularly. <laughs> Unless you think Dermot Mulroney is a cool dude, which uh, which maybe he is. Um, um, he's been a solid friend since uh, since 1989. Um, 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 
What was the other thing? You were, you yeah, were <clears throat> no, I suppose it was just that fact that, that you know, I suppose, you know, you, I guess when you start music, especially what any any age because you know obviously mm. a lot of people who were back then you know go god i would not have a clue how you do music now and how people make ends meet back then it almost seemed you know though we take things for granted when you look back at it it probably mm. seemed pretty grim you know sort of scrounging money you know i i mean you know i remember a story from the wolfhound saying that they went you know went from london to glasgow got to there for the gig it had been cancelled they had no money so they had to busk you know, for several days while keeping on someone's floor, <laughs> get some money to get back to London. And and then Fast and Fast Eddie said they, you know, once, had, you know, they had no money, so they had to vandalise the van, get picked up by the AA and get pulled back to London. So, you know, it was, it was, it was like... <laughs> well, that's inventive, yeah. Yes. So because there was, there was, you know, as he said, there was so little money about. But then, you know, you mm. look back and think, well, actually, there was, you know, housing benefit and unemployment benefit. And there were money for gigs, you know, and people got royalties for that limited amount of time. So but then, mm. you know, you didn't probably think back then, God, when I'm 64, to quote Paul McCartney, I'll still be in the music business with some other people doing it still and releasing a new album last week. Yeah, I, I, um, no, I didn't, I didn't expect uh, expect this. But um, as I was saying to somebody else, uh, interview wise, you know, like I'm a dog that's just having its day, basically. Um, I, I was um, a show off accordion player, or I was a bit of a shoegazer to start off with, um, and you know, never wrote anything in the in the post except for that one song. And here I am now. Um, I think it helped, funnily enough, to actually write the book that I wrote, um, the Here Comes Everybody, you know, the story of the Pogues thing. I don't know if you ever came across that. Yes, on Faber and Faber. Yes, indeed. So that that to go out and do a book tour helped an awful lot because you just stand in front of people and you just talk, um, which, which was satisfying because... Um, uh, people wanted to listen, and I could get over. I could get over myself a bit, and 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 sort of contribute, if you know what I mean. This sounds that's a word that my dad would use. Um, <laughs> when are you going to contribute, James? Well, I fucking hell, Jesus Christ, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so 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 here I am. Uh, you know the front man for whatever that means of, of you know the worker roaders um with with my spawn on either side from flogging molly and and um and um dropkick uh, drop murphy's uh, and and i'm the elder statesman of all this you know that the guy from the mothership and my little satellites and um and um well they're not little satellites they're the supremely talented guys ted hook production wise is is second to none um um and everything feels really good at the at the minute and i don't care how old i am um i must say that when the pogue started off i was actually 28 when that kicked off so i'm a bit of a late starter in any case yes and does it i mean just i mean when you know, obviously, you know, over those years and, and sort of having a, a, you know, such a career, does it feel kind of strange when you sort of look back on it? I suppose, you know, you have those really intense relationships with people and, and most mm. of them are thankfully still alive. I just wondered how emotionally you sort of managed to sort of 
deal with that to to put it to one not to one side but that you know like with Shane or with Kat and various other people where you think god you know it was a bit intense and sometimes things don't get left terribly well I just wondered you know when when that point comes where you can either make a phone call and say look I'm really sorry because I can remember David Bowie once phoning Trevor Boulder the bass player when he realized mm. he was about to die and, and say look I'm really mm. I'm really sorry you know it didn't finish well in the spiders of, of Mars yeah Mars. I just wondered if you ever had have ever managed to have those kind of occasional chats with people whether it's spider cat or shame just to say you know you know we've all moved on a bit and um you know I sort of sorry that some of the things got spoken or how we all behaved at some point huh. that's that's a multifaceted question because uh, there's so many people in first of all in, in in the pogs or whatever other bands that i've um, that i've been in it sounds like I'm, i've been in loads of bands but i haven't maybe about four or three or four um um and i suppose is your question meaning is there some sort of redemption somewhere or where you 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 go back and say well i said this because for these reasons or Yes, I guess it's that, because I remember there was a documentary and it was on the police and it had Stuart, the dream drummer, and he and they had that reunion and they were going to be making millions and he said everyone was having a great time apart from me and Sting and then we got band therapy and we spoke about it and Sting confessed, he said every time you say one of those things it really hurts and he went, oh God, I didn't realise it really hurt I just used to say because, yeah. you know, I just thought you were seeing this massive ego who didn't care about anything he said, no, every comment really hurts and then, so they managed to do the rest of the tour and I just wondered if there were moments where you think oh, I just would love to explain to so-and-so you know, what happened just to clear the air and to say, <laughs> you know I just wondered if ever that, that does happen and you think, God, I just got a phone call from so-and-so who just said I'm really sorry about something that happened 10 years ago, but I didn't really mean it. And I just needed to get that off my chest before we, you know, one of us dies first. Well, I think you, yeah, uh, I, um, um, I think you're crediting the Pogues with, <laughs> with something that, that maybe they, they shouldn't be credited for. I think we just, you know, um, I don't think there was any, well, all right, no, I was going to say, if there's anything that that hurt, yeah, I I, I probably hurt Spider. Um, well, not probably. I did certainly hurt Spider when I wrote uh, my book, and I, I I put a nose out a joint with Shane and and his wife as well. Um, but then I rang up Shane before I wrote it, or, or well, as I was writing it, but just when I got uh, the contract with Faber and Faber, and 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 I said, this is what I'm doing. And Shane says, oh, I don't give a fuck about that. But Shane doesn't, Shane doesn't give a fuck. As far as I can, I can tell, he don't give a fuck because he's always, you know, giving out the way that he's going to give out. And, and I do think he expects everybody else to, 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 well, to, to, to afford that freedom to everybody else. So um, I, 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 I do know that I have hurt my relationship with Spider um, on account of the the, the, the the book, but it's um, it's just it's a version of, of stuff. Yes. There's, ton, there's tons of versions of fucking everything. So um, whether you express them or not, they're still they're still rattling around there. So 
it's by virtue of that, I think. Yes. I know. Yeah. It, it's just, you know, having spoke to so many people in bands, you know, I can see there's this kind of real complexity of that you don't realise what's going to happen and it's kind of you're on the, you're on the trip before you know it and, and suddenly it, it kicks off because I suppose most people don't think it's going to go anywhere and then you think, Christ, we've got the first single, the first album, no, at all. And then suddenly someone's saying, what about the second album? And, and before you know it, you know, you think, well, this probably isn't going to take off. And you think, oh, my God, we're, we're now travelling the world, you know, and, it's, and you haven't had time to get band therapy. <laughs> you know? Well, I know, which I think that would have been laughed out of the house if somebody brought that up um, <laughs> back, back then. But uh, yeah, indeed, I suppose that's maybe the story of um, Here Comes Everybody is, is, you know, like at the end of the first chapter, after we've just um, um, uh, summoned Shane to Jem's room to, um, to, to, uh, uh, to let him go. And then he says, what took you so long? Um, and that's basically the story of, of the rest of the book, which is, you know, how, how do you... Um, keep any head above water when you're being um, sort of pummeled from various multiple angles um, with varying levels of intensity throughout nine years of your lives when the manager's saying, give me a year of your life and then you can rest up. No, sorry, did I say a year? Can you give me two years of your life and then you can rest? No, no, did I say two years? Can you give me three years of your life? And 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 then it goes on and on and on. And 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 this is in front of people. You go onto a stage and you just have to do what you do. And regardless of what happens, you have to stay there unless it can unless it gets so bad that uh, you have to walk off, which which we had to do once when the stage buckled at <laughs> um at um at the Olympia somewhere, I think it was. Um um, not Olympia, the, the um, Wembley, something or other. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's in it's in that kind of public view. It's not like in celebrity land public view. No. But it's in that. You know, you go on stage and you do shit, and 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 the, the music has to go on. Yes, that's right. And then bringing it up to the the modern day, you must be really pleased with the. The, the the sort of the mm. new the new album and the fact that you know I I'll confess I have listened to it on Spotify rather mm. than I didn't buy it I've, and I sort of noticed okay. you you've already had twenty one thousand monthly listeners and it's only just come out and this is this is so rewarding um, I think we might have hit a nerve somehow um, I mean the story's good you know nonetheless with with Dropkick Murphys and Flogging Molly and myself so it is like I mean. We didn't use the word supergroup. Somebody else did. I mean, I never put it. To, I never put it together as a supergroup. <laughs> but it's kind of funny. You think, wow, all right, that's fine. Yeah, great. I used to love Mountain and and um, Cream. Um, cream was a supergroup. Cream, group. for fuck's sake, <laughs> love them. Um, so yeah, bring it on. Um, yes. But then, but then the, the the level of of of, of creativity and work and editing and songwriting and ideas and stuff between myself and Ted and Mark, and then to have Brad Wood involved, who's such a discreet, fantastic bass player, and then to have Kieran step in for a couple of songs playing fiddle. He's been my wingman for many, many years. Um, and, and Brian Head, whom I met through an, an, another expat in, um, in um, 
Los Angeles. He's uh, such a nice bloke, great drummer, judicious, funny, um, full of bright ideas. Um, and yes. we've had great help from from uh, uh, from actually from the bass player from Low and Sweet Orchestra, who managed us to begin with in the first couple of years, and who financed basically the recording. We couldn't have done it without him, Tom Barter. Um, great to be reassociated with him um, after a, a few years. Nice, nice guy. Um, and. Um, yeah, I find it really rewarding, really satisfying, um, and and I'm chuffed as anything to have the um, yes. response that we've got. And also, I mean, you I, have you got plans to tour this? By the way, just kind of yeah, no, indeed, no. We're working with agents at the minute to try and figure out probably something in the new year, um, the UK, and we're looking at Australia in April um, at the moment. Um, might be a bit short notice to get anything crammed in before Christmas now, with it being September the first. Yes, but uh, we'll we'll um, we'll get something together. The Canadians are desperate to 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 see us because the Pogues gave them a swerve for withholding tax reasons um, in the reunion phase, so they're gagging for something like this. Yes, uh, and people from all over the world. We've had I've had I get emails from Mexico, from Japan, from New Zealand. Um, Germany would be great to go to because I know the Germans are fierce for the Pogues. Yes, and they and they yeah. love their and they. I know every British band I've interviewed. Go, okay, you got to do German. They love their merchandising. <laughs> oh, okay, that's a that's a good thing to put in my back pocket. All right, fine, yeah. Because <laughs> love- merchandise, you know, like I earn nothing from from your Spotify listens. So um, <laughs> um, merch, the merch. So, uh, but the merch and, and playing gigs is is, um, is. I I can't wait to do it. Really, yeah. Yes. Well, look, James. Oh, yeah. Just mm. br- just briefly, this last one, last one. What would you say to your an eight, you know, an eighteen-year-old self that that you were just starting out and you think, God, this is a bit of wisdom I've picked up through decades of being here doing this gig. I just wondered what the one thing you thought, God, I wished I'd, you know, that was one thing that I wished I'd known, or someone had just said, even if I ignored it, then it would have still been very useful. No, you know what? I think it works the other way around. I think I have to keep in tune with my 18-year-old. I'm going to go back in further I'm to my 10, 11-year-old self who was so desperate to play the piano that, uh, that I just I, I besieged my mum and dad. I, I want a piano. So they said, well, if you can find one, we'll get you one. So I got one for five quid from somewhere, a wooden frame thing. It was shit, but it was still a piano. Um and then uh, I did piano stuff. I was a choir boy back then. I don't know what he would think about my voice now. We would probably would have given up if he'd known it was going to turn out like this. <laughs> and then um, um, I, I have to keep in tune with 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 my 10-year-old, 11, 12, 15, 18-year-old, uh, and even 20-year-old going off to auditions around around London, which was, I, I you can't do any better than, Get on the fucking tube and go and play with people. Yeah, and I went all over the all over the place, and things didn't work out, and then they do. Yes, God, that is so. A, and now you're in LA. This is great. 
Well, the LA isn't the pinnacle of, of, of anything. <laughs> and I'm not hanging out with fucking... Well, all right, I met River Phoenix once and Brad Pitt used to hang out. and and. But uh, no, it's that's not what my life is at all. I'm 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 just a, a um, I'm just a dad basically. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. It's fine. Though you you have a short flight to Las Vegas, so you can enjoy the delights of the Vegas Strip. I fucking hate. I think it's an abomination, Las Vegas. Really hate it. Um, yeah, no, can't do with that place. I mean, I'll play there because they pay well. Yes. But um, 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 uh, uh, it no, freaks me out. Even yeah. coming in on the airplane, it looks weird. It, yes, yeah. it looks odd. I know those those hotels are so big compared to everything else. Well, but it's the, all the it's all the it's all the brown desert around, and then you get this sort of lozenge of green that's um, twinkling, and you think, "What the fuck are you doing there?" <laughs> this is true. Where, where are you at the moment, though? I'm in the Cotswolds right now. In the, actually, in the little village where. Daniel and myself got married nearly 30 years ago. Right. So I'm in a little cottage there. Um, been here for two months uh, writing um, my next book, which is a, a, a novel. Um, it's been difficult. Um, I've been working on it for ages. I'll get there eventually. But it's um, that's, so that's where that's that's why I'm here. Yes. And, and, yeah. and just briefly, have you finished the novel? No, um, I've finished, I think, sort of plotting it out, and there's a lot of it written, but there's some gaping holes in, in bits and pieces. Um, so that's the next stage, is to fill the holes up and make it all one. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, it's a family story, and, um, and uh, yeah, it's a family story. Yeah, my God, that's quite ambitious. Foolhardy, maybe. <laughs> what was why that and not you know because you did the prose which you know the novel you know the narrative, but why a novel? Did was it something that was always in your mind? It started out with a little bit of writing that I did about my dad being taken down the street by his aunt Beatrice, and she was pointing out things uh, in the neighbourhood to this little boy, and she came across. This thing in the in the in the in the on the pavement in front of her and said, "Oh look, a frog! Let's see if we can make this little frog jump." And so she got her umbrella and she stuck the finucle or whatever I think it's called ferrule of the um, umbrella onto this frog and it and and lifted it up off the um, sidewalk off the pavement and said, "Oh dear, dog shit!" <laughs> and um, and so it sort of spun off from there with. So it's a story with my dad in it. My, um, I, I think she was called Auntie Beatrice, but it's got my grandfather in it and then multiple other characters and then it all seemed to coalesce around the King Lear story. So there's an old man who's getting rid of his responsibilities and wants to be looked after the rest of his life uh, on these conditions. And the conditions bite him in the ass, basically. So, um, And there's some amateur dramatics in it. Wow, this is good. Well, best of luck with finishing that. That's um... thank you. So you sound like I'm not going to finish it. It's no. just the way you said that. Well, best of luck with finishing that. Well, it's only, well, there's a multi-layered narrative going on. I think. God. Oh, balls! Yeah, no, that's that, that's that's the yeah, that's the bane of um, my writing experience at the minute. 
it's so difficult to, to you know, uh, spin those plates and not have one of them crash. Yeah. So, um, um, so but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going at it. And then when I get back to LA, I'm going to, you know, get the gigs thing sorted out and see if it kind of gets Australia to happen and um, England. I've been talking with the old Pogues agent in London and um, Simon Moran, who used to do all the promoting for the Pogues um, tours up and down the country, and, and he's into it. So, so yeah, that's, that's my next job, really, when I get back. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with James, a finally one-time member of the Pogues, and now very much part of the Walker Roaders. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, um, yes, Twitter, Facebook, even Instagram, just go to at C86 Show. And also all these uh, shows, which I've been doing for the three years, have been um, podcast, so you can listen to them with great excitement. And that's available on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track from the Pogues. Um, which is going to be my favourite, I have to say that. I'm just putting it right out there now. It's a bit predictable, I know. But um, anyway, have a great week. Give me it, our best 
regards to the hut, to Mr. Cohen, they're all Times Square's favorite bird. Then we raise a glass to JFK and a dozen more besides. When I got back to 